This week, I interviewed Dr. Edith Agar, a psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, but also a Holocaust survivor. I can honestly say that this interview will stay with me till my last days, because not only was my heart broken in two, listening to the most unbelievable suffering that this human went through, but it also gave me such hope in the human spirit, the strength of a woman united with her sisterhood, but also the resilience that we all possess, the hope and love and compassion that we can choose, if only we opened our eyes. I just can't tell you, you're going to need your notepad and pencil here, you're going to need tissues, because possibly this is one hour with more life lessons than maybe some of us would ever learn in a lifetime. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Edith. What an honor it is to be speaking to you today. Your story is very important, very valuable, and I know you have so much wisdom to share with us all. It's an absolute privilege to capture your story. So welcome to my podcast. I want to tell you that when I was in London many years ago, I was invited to a program only for women. Women's Hour? Yeah, I had a wonderful time with women. Of strength. Oh, fantastic. Not strong women, but women of strength. It's still going and it's still amazing. Where are you based now? I am in California. I'm in the outside of San Diego called La Jolla. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. First of all, I wanted to introduce you properly to our listeners. You are Dr. Edith Ager, a world-renowned psychologist, New York Times best-selling author, and also a Holocaust survivor. But I think we really want to begin, if that's okay with you, understanding a little bit more about who you are and the spirit that you embody. So I wanted to just start with sharing some of your own words. You have said that you are a human being who went through an experience. You say it's not your identity. It's not who you are. It was what was done to you and that you refuse to be a victim. Tell me why these words are fundamental to who you are. I think you're brilliantly saying that I'm no superhuman or subhuman. I am human, and that means I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, but I am celebrating uh, my 94th birthday because the chronological number doesn't mean a thing. 
you know, it's your attitude, it's the way you look at things. And I'm freer now than I ever been. I'm happier because I give up my need for other people's approval. Wow, something a lot of women, I think, could um, do with. I also wanted to ask you about your views on victimhood and victimization, because I thought this was, well, I've never ever learned anything like it. Could I hear it from yourself? I think victims always will find a victimizer and that I believe that leads to blaming. And while you blame, you're still a child. It doesn't matter how old you are. So when you are blaming someone that they make you angry or whatever, I think you need to grow up. Because when you grow up, you don't like maybe what you have to do, but you do what you think is uh, on the long term hedonism, not the short term, that you're not smart, you're wise. I loved how you spoke about, you know, these two sort of states of mind, victimization and, and victimhood, and how victimization, I thought, was so clear that it was what happens to you externally, the outside force onto you, but your victimhood is your internal control. That's very well said, honey. Very well said. And uh, I know yesterday's victims can very easily become today's victimizers. I think it's very important to learn not to react, but to respond. You know, when you react, you don't think, but you, you want to really think before you say anything and ask yourself, is it necessary? Is it important? And most of all, is it kind? And if it's not kind, don't say it. Gosh, I'm already, well, we're a few minutes in and I'm already scribbling down notes here. I wonder if we might be able to go right back to the spring of 1944. And I know it's a painful time for you to recall. You were a young Jewish girl, just 16 years old, living with your parents and your sister, Clara and Magda in Hungary. Tell me a little bit about what life was like then, because it was German occupation, was spreading across Europe. And I know you've said that as a teenager, you were preoccupied with just being young and enjoying life. And you were a talented gymnast and dancer, and you had a boyfriend that you loved. I grew up when my city was part of Czechoslovakia, and it became part of Hungary in 1938. And that's when really the anti-Semitism and the Hungarian Nazi party was uh, very active in my city, especially because we lived in a beautiful place and they had to see to it that no Jewish people will ever live there. So we were beginning to really having difficulties since 1938 when the Hungarians moved in. I did go to a, a private school for girls and I studied Latin and I was very erudite. I, people call me the Anne Frank who didn't die. And I think that was quite true. I still want to learn. I'm still very curious. And I think Auschwitz really was helped by my curiosity and changing hate to pity. Yes. I feel sorry for the guards that they were brainwashed. 
that they called me a pariah. And I think uh, it was wonderful that I developed a way not to ever take it personally. It's just an unbelievable thought that you, this was all happening and you were at such a young age. I know on one cold April morning, everything then changed for you when a knock at the door began a terrible journey from Hungary to Auschwitz. Um, It was a deeply traumatic train journey. But during the journey, your mother said something to you that was incredibly powerful, words that have gone on to shape your life. Can you recall them now? Yes, thank you for asking. We were pushed in a cattle car and it was totally crowded. And my mom asked me to come and sit next to her and this is what she said. Honey, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. So when I go to school room, that's the first thing I tell the students. It's just incredible. We don't know where we are going or what is going to happen. But remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. These words just are profound. Perhaps before you'd seen the full horror of what lay ahead, do you think that these words stayed with you throughout your time? I think my mom would be very happy now, knowing that she told me those words, because exactly that's what happened. Everything was taken away from me, except I had my mind and I had my sister Magda, who was a hundred years old in January, but she'll tell you that she's 99. I don't know why one one year, (laughs) but Hungarian women will cut down as much as they can. Oh my goodness. I would love to uh, know right at the beginning, I know you drew um, on these words, especially on your first night in Auschwitz when you were forced to dance with Dr. Mengele. And you, I know he was also called the Angel of Death. Tell me about this evening. It was, again, quite a moment to remember. It was a very difficult moment because he came to the barracks and he wanted to know about the newcomers and who can entertain him. And the girls just put me in front of him. And the Jewish school teacher was there. Have you ever seen a finger like that? I mean, it's really a bony finger. And she told me, do as you are told. That was no question. And in no time at all, I was dancing and pretending that the music was Tchaikovsky. And I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet at the Budapest Opera House to a very elegant very elegant audience. So I think your imagination is so important in those dire situations because fear was all over me, not knowing whether I'll be the next one to go to the gas chamber. And he threw you a loaf of bread afterwards to reward you and you shared it with your inmates and it was an act of kindness on your behalf that many months later would save your life. It's unimaginable to think of what you've gone through in just one day. You were separated from your parents upon arrival and they were sent to the gas chamber. And before I go on, I would it breaks my heart to 
talk to you about this, but I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm sure everybody listening is so sorry for your loss. I can't actually bear the pain um, that you went through with your sister, Magda. You had your heads shaved. You were stripped of all your dignity, starved, beaten and humiliated. How did you survive during this time? And how did your spirit endure? I know that Magda might have had something to do with this. I think people who had somebody with them, even today, when someone comes in with someone, I think it's a better chance because all we had was each other then. And of course, all we have is each other now. I know my mother would say it with a British accent, by God, she's got it. By God, she's got it. An English accent, yes. My gosh, she's got it. There you go. There we go. You mentioned in another interview that each moment in Auschwitz was hell on earth. It was also my best classroom, the place where I discovered how to cope with chronic fear and uncertainty and to survive a reality I could not have expected or anticipated. You also, you said that your love of Magda, that it was very important that she um, would tell you that she took care of me and I will tell you that I took care of her, which I have a very close sister who's my best friend. And that so touched me because I completely understand what you're, tr- you're saying there. Tell me about this classroom and this learning to deal with uncertainty. Uh, one thing was sure, you cannot change the outside of you. The gas chamber was there. Four o'clock in the morning, we stood in line. They told us you cannot really come when you're not feeling well. We want you to stay back. We're going to take you to the hospital. We found out there is no hospital. There is the gas chamber. And so we held on to each other. We didn't know what's going to happen. That's where we are now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All we have is this moment, the present. So we learned very quickly how to really form a family of inmates that we would protect and do everything we can So we would use anything we can to have a good family of inmates. And that's what I think I learned. Number one, that uh, we didn't know what will happen the next minute. But right now we are together and we're going to empower each other with our differences. And do you think that that is something that was incredibly important to you? We're going to go on. Uh, later on in this interview about what you ended up doing. But if we stay in this period of time, do you think that you were learning your skill at maybe empowering people or looking at the looking at a situation? Because I know you, I, I've read you say, I go through the valley of the shadows of death, but I don't camp there. I don't live in Auschwitz. I don't run from Auschwitz or fight it. I face it now as the place where everything was taken away from me. And I still had my mind and I still had the power to turn hatred into pity. I can imagine people were very, very grateful that they ended up with you near them. Well, you know, I want people to say, if she can do it, I can do it. I'm appreciating when I'm a good role model, especially to young people who give up so soon, who drop out of school, who smoke pot, who do many, many things, unfortunately, that is self-destructive. 
I think self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. I say that many, many, many times. I mean, yes. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I've got goosebumps and it's taken my breath away when you speak. As the war continued, you survived several other camps and endured slave labour before you were sent on a death march to Austria. Would you tell us what happened on that march? Because firstly, with the women you had previously shared bread with, and then with the American soldier, if it's not too painful, of course, to recount. Let me tell you something that we women can somehow maybe share with each other. I grew up with two sisters, and I never saw a man in my life. So I was told that in the morning we're going to the gas chamber. So at night, I snuck out and looked at dead bodies of men because I wanted to die knowing what they have, what I don't have. Imagine such a thing. I'm sharing it with you because yeah. this is what I remember. And I always tell you what I lived. Yeah. And the morning came and they decided to put me on a death march. And that was in Mauthausen, Austria. But when you stop, they shut you through you in a place where I went and visited, revisited that place. And the girls that I shared that bread with that Dr. Mengele gave me came and picked me up and carried me so I wouldn't walk. Isn't this amazing that one woman does for another woman? And I know that that's what you represent. <laughs> and that's where you are today with me. Hopefully, I can be a good role model to you. It's the bit that just um, has got me because they created a chair with their arms and carried you so that you wouldn't die. And you all tried to keep each other alive. And they, that womanhood, that sisterhood, must have been so incredibly powerful and why women are so incredibly powerful. We, I don't know if we even know our strength and you are absolutely a role model to myself, to everyone listening, that your kindness inspired this womanhood in all of them and you were connected as one. And what a powerful thing to go through. It must have been beyond imagination. I think it's very important in this dire situation, look at the home that you come from. I see me as a mother, as this earth. I supply that for my child, that I give the child the feeling that the world is a safe place. But I don't see a boy with the father that way. I see it in a more competitive way. I think a boy looks at that and makes a decision that I want to be just like him mm. or I want to be everything he's not. Yes, yes. And then trying to prove that he's not like his father, not realizing he's uh, now living a victim. Yes. He can be his own self and develop his own authentic one-of-a-kind you. So I think it's very important to look at the differentiation between a, a mom and a dad. Ooh, yes, I agree. My gosh, you're pretty good at what you do, aren't you? Um, t 
tell me, then there was this moment, the Americans are here, and they were there, and you nearly didn't get discovered, did you? Tell me what happened there, because you were practically not living at this point in time. So it was when you got discovered. So the soldiers were shouting and I read that basically it was Magda's sardine tin that caught the light. Yes, the Red Cross gave us a can of sardine and I never forgive myself. I didn't let her open up. And then they were liberated and there was that that I didn't allow her to open that's a good sentence, I think, to use. If I would know then what I know now, I would have done things very differently because my sister was really for me to stay alive. Mm. So all we had was each other then. And of course, all we have is each other now. I like to form a human family and how we can empower each other. So you can be you and I can be me, but together we're much stronger. And I think suffering makes you stronger. This was the moment where the Americans came and I read that people were so, they were handing cigarettes to inmates who were so hungry, they were eating them. Everyone was basically trying to raise their hands to show that they were alive. And uh, basically, they were leaving, weren't they? And you were under bodies and people couldn't find you. And this sun flashed on Magda's sardine tin. And you don't know whether it was an accident or what happened, but it caught the soldier's eye. And you felt a man touching your head and he pressed something into your your hands. Is that right? Let me tell you... uh... What happened when uh, I was interviewed by Oprah and I'm trying to tell her that I felt somebody holding my hand. And then I looked up and all I saw was a big lip. And she jumped up and she said, he was black. So I took another look and I see this man with tears in his eyes. And M&M's in his hand. And that's, that's yes, yes. I've never lips like that before, but I wish I could find him today. He saved my life. He gave me the M&M's. If you come to my house, you get M&M's with a picture of me on the M&M. I love that. That's what... <laughs> well, you know what? what was unbelievable is that When you were weighed, you were 32 kilograms. You had a broken back, hence why you couldn't walk. You had typhoid fever, pneumonia, and pleurisy. It was amazing. And yet, uh, every day, I was waiting for my parents to show up. And when they did not, I became suicidal after I was liberated. Yes, because I was going to talk about this now because you were liberated in, yeah, 1945. May 4th. Okay, May the 4th. May 4th. May the 4th. 1945. And then I can tell you that I'm sure that God, the God that I discovered in Auschwitz, who became my guide, told me that if I die, I'm not going to find out what happens and 
I need to be for something rather than against something. And today I am having a little thing that I remember I told my patient who was in a marathon and she stopped and she didn't know how to start going further. And uh, she ran into my office. I did it. I did it because you told me so. And so I asked, what did I tell you? Yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. So that can be a good motto. Yes, I am. Yes, I can. I may not be perfect. Give up your perfectionism and don't say I think about it tomorrow. Don't be Scarlett O'Hara. Whatever you can do today, I live in a present and I think young, but not young and foolish. Yeah. Oh, you were liberated and you were miraculously reunited with your sister, Clara. Would you tell me how that happened? Because this must have been your God looking over you. I think it was very important for me to do everything in my power, but not at somebody else's expense. I think it was very important for us to be as generous as we could be, even if they came from a different world, different background. I think all we had was each other then. Uh, when I was a little girl, I found out that the music uh, department in Budapest took in my sister, the only Jewish girl. And when she was already in the camp, Mr. Waldbauer was his name. He smuggled my sister out and hit her at the end of the war. And when I came back from Vienna to Prague, on the top of the train with the Russians, I saw advertisement, my sister with the violin no. that she's giving a concert. I mean, what? That's what happened in Prague. It must have been one emotional experience seeing her again. She couldn't probably have believed that you were both alive. She became my mother and we would go to the airport and I started to talk to the agent and she pushed me aside. She took over for me because <laughs> I couldn't talk to an agent. You know, I was married with three children. I had a PhD. It didn't matter at all. <laughs> she told us if she would have been in Auschwitz, my mother, our mother would be with us. I, I don't think that was very realistic, unfortunately. But Clara had Alzheimer's and Unfortunately, she had it for 10 years. It's a long, long, long death, long, long. Um, but Clara was an amazing uh, violinist and beautiful people that I met myself. And so I, I have a lot of beautiful memories with Clara in Budapest with the other musicians. I feel about talk and many just incredible. I mean, what are the chances of three sisters being brought together and being able to live a life together? And it was also 
the time for another journey began for you, one that you've written so beautifully about, the journey to inner freedom. You spent time in hospital, obviously recovering, where you met your beloved husband, Baylor, and you moved to the United States not long after the war with him and your young daughter and made a new life training firstly as a teacher and then as a psychologist. Now, of course, this wasn't an easy journey, this reclaiming the power how did you begin to work through this trauma that you had faced? And I read that you had terrible survivor's guilt for a decade. I think you alluded to your suicidal thoughts. Was that linked with this guilt? Yes, uh, I graduated cum laude and I never showed up for my graduation because I said to myself, I don't deserve it because they're not alive. So believe me, it's very, very important to give yourself permission at least to collect what you really earned. I think it's, uh, it's important to say that when we were liberated, people would go through the gate and pretty soon they would come back and sit down. This is what Dr. Seligman calls learned helplessness. I think it's very good for women to learn that because many women are brainwashed by their husbands that they're nothing without them. So they leave the man who beats them and they come back. I counted anywhere from seven to 15 times because he makes her feel that she is nothing without him. So you got to really be careful who you listen to whether you're going to take it personally, I think it's good to really have your choices and practice them. And your choices uh, to be a survivor and not a victim, because victims will always find the victimizer. So people ask me, did you love your husband? And my answer is, I was 17. I was very skinny. I was very lonely, and I was very hungry. And Bela brought me Hungarian salami, and so I married him. <laughs> I married the man. Love, you talk about love. I don't know love. I know that I was hungry, and he brought me Hungarian salami. Each week, I sit down with a cup of tea and write my weekly Friday email, Holly's Desk Notes. I share everything I've been up to, thinking about or working on in the past week. I genuinely love it. And it's a real moment in my week when I stop, sit down and put pen to paper. You'll often find recommendations from my favourite small businesses and what they create, details of places or events I've been to or think you'd love, recent articles from our advice hub, the latest Holly Loves collections, or perhaps sharing what's been happening in my world outside of Holly & Co. Not only that, but by joining our email community, you'll be the first to hear about all the exciting updates throughout the year, be that our shop independent campaigns, our tours across the country, and let's not forget the independent awards. If you'd love to hear our latest news, advice and inspiration, follow the link in the description below to join our newsletter community or head on over to holly.co where you can easily sign up. 
Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You make me smile so much. I was wondering if you can tell me about the lessons from your book. You spoke about there were these key lessons that now define your work as a psychologist. Can you recount those? I was always very studious. And on top of that, my mother told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. And so I became absolutely very learned, very erudite. And I read the interpretation of dreams by Freud when I was 13. And then I had my own book club. So you see, it kind of started with Freud. And I I think... uh, studying human behavior, even now, it's very fascinating. I spoke to over 100,000 Ukrainians, and I am very proud and very happy. My goodness. Yeah, and Jewish people, you know, were also slaves. And when they were liberated, they found this guy, Moses, and they started to walk on the desert. I understand this was over 40 years and they never gave up. Mm. I are here. We are a good role model. Never, ever Never give, give up. up. And you also had your other lessons from your book, which if I can read out, if you wouldn't mind, you can't heal what you don't feel. Honesty starts with learning to tell the truth to yourself. And the opposite of depression is expression. And I have to say that when I read these already i need to really sit with them because i think there's so much especially maybe for women but maybe men as well but i can only talk on my own own experience telling the truth to yourself i mean how often do we just avoid it it's better to just not talk about it and expression how often do we swallow the grenade the whatever it is we swallow it we're not truthful, we stay silent, and we think that that will heal us. But you think the opposite. I I like to talk about love uh, and my definition of it. Uh, my definition of love is the ability to let go. Yeah. Let go of the need for other people's approval. Let, let go of the word rejection. No one rejects me but me. You know, I may just not get what I asked for. It has to do with my expectation. It's my job to really examine whether it's realistic or unrealistic. So love is not what you feel, is what you do. And I can tell you that I have my daughter here. And uh, my daughter is Audrey. And Audrey is here with me. And I want you to... Say hi to my little Audrey and her precious husband, Dale, and came to take care of me and be my babysitter. So tonight it's Hungarian goulash with something called deviled potatoes. What are they? They sound very spicy. Oh, that potato is full of butter and sour cream and salami and uh, Hungarian sausage and uh, you're invited to dinner. Oh, I would love to come. I mean, this is crazy not to be sitting there with you and your 
most colourful outfit. When you joined me, I was for those who know me, they they do know I'm incredibly colourful. And you're sitting in a beautiful floral silk, I'm thinking it's silk, scarf and shirt. And it's just, you look ever so stunning, I have to say. Can I ask you a question before we get onto the goulash and thinking about food, which I'm hungry now? You say you don't call me shrink, right? So this is quite an American term. Don't call me a shrink. Call me a stretch. And although it sounds lighthearted, there is a serious message, isn't there, behind your words. I just, I love how you have playfulness in how you're communicating. I think I like to stretch people's comfort zone. Remember, they say, I am what I am, but you're not Popeye. I think it was important for me to go back to Auschwitz. And when I was coming out, I saw a man with a uniform, and for a moment I thought it was a Nazi, but I had a blue American passport in my pocket, and I knew that I'm not Popeye. And I am coming out of this place knowing that's where my best education came from. Auschwitz was a classroom where I learned how to cooperate, not compete or dominate, or because all we had was each other there. So if you look at anything and remember, it's just how you look at it. It's your attitude that is most important to examine. Do you come from love or do you come from hate? Because if you come from hate, you're still a prisoner. Mm. So I hope you can forgive yourself because self-love is self-care. I said that before, it's not narcissistic. And do you think it really does come with all your years and everything you've gone through? that it does come down to love or hate, that that's the choices that we make? The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And I heard that from uh, the psychologist, not Brene Brown, she's a brilliant woman, I hope you can. Yeah. She's a beautiful one. But this, this was a man in the late 40s, 50s, uh, and I'm quoting him, it's not, I said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. I'd rather be hated than overlooked. Because if you hate me, you spend energy on me, see? Yeah. No one kicks a dead dog. So it's, it's what you think of it is going to happen. And I think of it that you spend energy hating me, that really means that I'm a somebody to level with yes and is this what you wrote about in your next book the choice you speak about you found hope in hopelessness of it being how we respond what happens to us in life being the thing that ultimately frees us i think what ultimately frees us is a good homework to write down what you resent and write down what you appreciate. And sometimes what we appreciate one time, we appreciate, and then you find out, for instance, that when we went to a party, my 
husband was always on time. He was in the car waiting for me while I was doing my little frou-frou. But when I had to go to Australia and I had to be at the airport, 4.30 in the morning, he was there. Yeah. So what I resent one time, I appreciate another time. And I think that would be a good homework to cleanse yourself and think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to. And anything you pay attention to, you reinforce the very behavior. Because we give it energy? Well, you know, you tell me maybe that you want to lose weight. So I give you some things to do or not to do and eat or not eat. And then you tell me that you're trying. But what we call in psychology, trying is lying. That you either get up or you don't get up from this chair. That uh, <laughs> get rid of the trying business. Stop trying, you're either going to do it or you don't do it. But don't try. Oh my gosh, how could I love you more? Trying is lying. I mean, yes, that's right. My God, I'm going to be telling myself that tomorrow morning when I'm up to go for a run. Um, we've all been lucky enough to benefit from your enormous wisdom, which you shared more of in your second book, The Gift, a book that shares valuable lessons to help heal and inspire so that everyone can break free from whatever it is that's holding them back. I know you so bravely returned to Auschwitz, like you said, in your 50s. Was this confronting your past? Was it a breakthrough? Did you still need to do that? Because I, I would have thought that that was the last place that you ever wanted to return. I asked my sister to come with me because I decided to go back to Auschwitz and go back to the lion's den and look at the lion in the face and reclaim my innocence and assign the shame and guilt to the perpetrator. And she looked at me and she said, you are an idiot. And that was that. That was my sister Magda. So I went without my sister Magda. I think it's very positive because that's what I do today. I hold your precious hand. You're not there. You're here with me. I provide you the atmosphere yeah. where you can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. <laughs> you never hear any judgment from me. And I think it's important sometimes, if you can, do it in person, especially if you were molested, that a woman came to me one time and said, I was molested. And how can I tell you, you were in Auschwitz? And my answer was, I knew the enemy. Mm -hmm. You didn't. So don't try to compare or make decisions. Mm -hmm. Think about it, that anything and anyone who touches you without your permission and see the feelings of there is no forgiveness without rage. Mm -hmm. You have to shake your fist. And this is what you say about expression, isn't it? I think God allows us to do and experience and feel that feeling and decide how long you're going to hold on to that feeling. Mm -hmm. That is important. Mm -hmm. I don't live in Auschwitz. I go through the valley of the shadow of death. I, I, I think it's good to look at life sometimes that you're going from, from a tunnel uh, 
path to the light. Yeah. Keep moving. And this tunnel of light that you have is full of now happiness and acceptance. No one could possibly deserve more than you. And today you have a legacy of a wonderful family with children and grandchildren who all adore you and who you adore. Looking back now at your life, are you able to say that you think you've healed? Uh, I am in a process. I'm climbing a mountain and I never stop climbing. I want to get to know you. I want to try some food I never did before. I uh, I like the idea of, of a stretch rather than a shrink. I want you to also do that with your beautiful mind. And knowing there is one thing we cannot ever change, and that's the past. Hmm. You might as well find a place for it and know that whatever happened, you made it. So the question is not why me, but what now? <laughs> Get rid of the why, change it to a what. Why is in a past? What is in a present? And where do you go from here? And that's in a solution orientation. I know that you want to be like me at 94. I hope you are going to have that, your goal. I will. And see, see whether you reach for anything and you ask yourself, is this empowering me or depleting me? Is this good for me? Your self-talk changes your whole body chemistry. That has been proven. So think about your thinking. And I know that you do that every day especially when you are having your hair bleached beautifully uh, to show up the way you like to be seen. This uh, conversation and your strength is going to be 100% in my life from now on. And you 100% will be a role model of mine until forever. I would love to ask you a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. If life is a roller coaster that you're on and you would look fabulous in your roller coaster, I'd, I'd hope you wear the outfit that you're wearing now. What would you say has been one of your lowest moments of your life? I think uh, one of the most tragic times when I was not allowed to join the Olympics because I'm Jewish. So you were that good? Yeah, I was a very good gymnast. I can still give you the high kick. Maybe I'll do it if you want to see. Um, yes, uh, I'm double-jointed and I was Bangalore. That's why they chose me. I think that would be probably a shocking moment experience for me. And can you tell me the opposite? Can you tell me when you have the wind in your hair in the top of the cart on the roller coaster? It's when my first child was born because the doctor told me when I told him I'm pregnant that he scheduled an abortion because I'm too weak to have a child and came over to the house and I got up and I said, sir, watch when I say, sir, I choose life. Good night. So as he was walking down, my late husband, Bela, apologize to the husband that his wife doesn't know how to talk to a doctor 
respectfully. Oh Imagine that's thinking about patriarchy. Nineteen forty-five. Gosh, you chose life. She was a big girl. She is now about five nine and a half. She is also a psychologist working with children, and sports psychology is one of her. Um, her specialist subjects. She's in New York, but that's why she sent the other sister to take care of me. <laughs> and they're going to get Hungarian goulash tonight. Edith, at the end of this interview, people normally share with me just some words that you might have said to your younger self. I'm wondering if there's anything that comes to mind that you would like to tell your younger self. I want to be a good parent to my younger self and not to do anything that I will regret. Remorse, yes, but regret, no. Remorse, what's the difference? I think that it's okay to have remorse. I think it's okay to um, say to yourself, if I knew then, I would have done things differently. Don't run from it. Don't deny it. Yeah. Don't even minimize it. You know, not to run. That's one thing people do. They run. It's like it never existed. And that's my sister. Yeah. That's my sister. She would never, ever want to ever talk about the past. Right. And I know I don't bring it up. And I respect her. I just say how when she asked me, when we were totally nude, and when she asked me, how do I look? That's a kind of typical Hungarian woman's question. How do I look? And instead of telling her how she looked naked, I told her, Magda, you have such beautiful eyes. And I didn't see it when you had hair all over the place. Gosh. That I remember. That you can point out what you lost or, hey, I'm here. I made it. I suffered. I'm stronger. You know, it's the way you look at things is everything. So you represent the young people and you are the role model to them. I will always try and live up to you. And I've said that I'm going to retire when I'm 90. Now, looking at you, I'm going to move that forward a bit to 90, well, whatever, 100, thinking about your sister. So uh, I've just put on another decade to carrying on and hopefully in any way inspiring women in their strength. But for today, You've done something incredible, which has shared with many, many people your strength and your knowledge and your wisdom. And we won't forget it. And I just can't thank you enough. There is one thing, you know, I hope for, for America to look at the guns. Yeah. And see that we need that many guns. Yeah. Because when you have a gun in a home, it's going to be used. Yeah. I just can't cope with what's going on over there and and what you must have been brought up with violence and to even have this, as you said, with the tragedy that's just happened recently. It's just um, incredibly painful, I can imagine, to live with. But I think we want to give up perfectionism because if we just don't hurt each other, 
if we can just cooperate, if we can just form a human family. That's my dream. Well, I'm going to try and do it over here in the pond, and you've got to go and make your goulash. And uh, what's your devil potatoes? The devil potatoes has a lot of butter, a lot of yeah. sauerkraut, with a lot of uh, uh, potatoes and hard-boiled eggs and ham and salami. It's all together. You put it in the oven with um, more, more sour cream for one hour. And that's what the devil potatoes <laughs> goes with the goulash tonight. I think that that's, that's the thing that will stop up me getting up running if I was going to have that. But I, you know what? You're going to... You're going to enjoy it. I'm going to think of you enjoying it, and that makes me happy. Do you think I can send you some? Yeah, send me some. We could just, you know, there's no issues with shipping things with Brexit and everything and all the issues that we have everywhere here in the UK. Just get it over to us. I'm sure the Queen would have enjoyed some this this past weekend as well. (laughs) (laughs) Edith, thank you so much. I've taken an hour of your time. Thank you for your time. Bless you. And I will, um, I I just don't want to keep you too. You've just been amazing and your story is incredible. I'd like you to know that I divorced my husband, but you know, he had nothing to do with it. Really? And then people say, but then you went back to him. No, I didn't go back to him. We had a new beginning. Right. I was a child when I married him the first time. I was a woman when I married a man. Right. It's very important that we talk as a woman to a woman. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness me. So you had two weddings, did you? Oh, I married twice. Yeah, not the first time. It was really, um, we just had to go to uh, to the city hall and sign something. But it was, that. that's all it was. That was all it was. Yeah. So the second time was the real time, was it? I think we were grown-ups and we had beautiful years together when the tuberculosis that got him sick during the war, unfortunately. I'm so sorry. He was very young, 73, um, but we made memories and it's going to keep me as long as I can. I don't know the word happy. I wonder about that word sometimes, whether I'm happy. I don't know how to be happy when I see families separated and not knowing whether, you know, I, I'd rather tell you that I'm cheerful. I hope for the best. But to be happy, um, I don't know what to do with that word. It's a word, doesn't it, that people overuse maybe a lot and set expectations that are too high. I think you are a great interviewer. You did your homework (laughs) and I want to thank you. Well, thank you. I've spent days in every interview you've ever done and everything, and it's just been unbelievable. We didn't cover half the things that I was reading about you, and it's just incredible. It's just unbelievable, and I I get lost for words, but thank you so much for sharing with us everything you have. Thank you. I love your hair. Go back to your hairdresser (laughs) and give her my beautiful. Thank you so, so much.
If you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Edith Agar, I'd love to suggest listening to my chat with Dame Stephanie Shirley. You can find all my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Thank you.